We are Michael Vesey in London, England. And Jason Miles in Seattle, Washington. More importantly, you are the owner of a thriving online business and you want to become the best e-commerce leader you can be. We're here to get you there. For show notes with links and resources mentioned today and for other GC resources like downloads, just visit our blog, theecommerceleader.com. Jeff Bezos is famously stepping down as a CEO of Amazon and handing off the CEO position to Andy Jassy. So this is the very first time that a CEO has changed in Amazon since its creation in 1994 by Jeff Bezos, who's also been the co-founder, sorry, the founder slash co-founder and the CEO forever, it seems. And especially in like the crazy upswing in 2020 e-commerce demand, this feels like a real moment to reflect on Jeff Bezos's legacy at Amazon and where Andy Jassy and Amazon as a whole are likely to be going in the future. So, Jason, are you ready to indulge in some pontif pontification and speculation <laughs> as all good pundits do? Sure, of course. I love to do that. Who, who doesn't want to do that kind of yeah. fun conversations? Yeah, Absolutely. let's jump into this. So the first thing I want to look at for a little bit is dwell on Jeff Bezos's legacy, because I think the clue to Amazon's future it always lies in the past, but I think particularly in Amazon's case, they've built such a strong culture that I think it's worth, you know, really examining what it is that Jeff's built, because I think that's going to be largely, you know, the house that Jeff built is the one that Andy Jassy is going to be, mm -hmm. you know, living mm -hmm. in, as it were. So you're, uh, let me just start off by talking, asking you as a, a person who doesn't sell on Amazon. So you see it more from the outside perspective. Obviously, it's a big competitor in the space of e-commerce that you're in. What are your thoughts from from a slightly more outside perspective of, of what Jeff Bezos's legacy is? What are, yeah. what are the, the starting points for you? Well, minor correction: I do sell on Amazon in the Kindle category and the book category. Quite right, my, my <laughs> so <laughs> everyone right. who sells has to sell on Amazon almost, right? So, Good but I, I, my core product is not a, a Amazon third party marketplace seller business, obviously. Yeah, so I take your point. Yeah, I think just in general, I would say on the culture aspect. I know people who've worked at Amazon and work there currently. And so I think I, I look at it as a local culture, local employment practitioner here in the Seattle area. And I think it's a mixed bag. I know people who have been very unhappy working there. And I think that media uh, coverage in the last few years has become increasingly unkind to Amazon's leadership and pointed out increasing ways in which it feels maybe like there's a degree of uh, improvement that could occur, to say the least. <laughs> and so I think the culture, while it being a fanatical customer obsession, which is obviously his mantra and has been his mindset and has been instilled in the company, has left something to be desired on the employer-employee relationship side of things. I think that's fair to say. I don't think that's controversial at all. And so I think that, you know, that culture piece, it's a two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. I suppose if you want to make things amazing for your customers, then, you know, you can uh, burn people out and really challenge them. And I could share specific stories of, you know, what I've heard from uh, people who have worked there, but I don't know that it's productive, but just suffice it to say, it's a mixed bag. Now, I've, I also know people who've worked there that are happy. I think it depends maybe on where you work inside the company and, you know, that type of experience and, and maybe, you know, the difference between people working there from a long time ago with a lot of tenure versus people who are newer. But as with all large, large institutions, there's going to be a lot of impact on your corporate culture internally, just based on who your supervisor is. And, you know, so I think as I reflect on it, I think of those stories, I think of the people I know who have been impacted uh, by the local corporate culture. 
Hmm. And some of that. So there you go. I mean, I guess that's my insider, insider baseball, Seattle, local hmm. person perspective a bit. Yeah. Very interesting. I mean, I've a couple of thoughts on this. I'll speak to you. A guest on this who's actually a Washington insider, but not at all an e-commerce insider, Robin Guster, who's actually British originally, but has been in Washington for like 40 years. So mm-hmm. he's more like a Washington insider these days. And yeah, they, he was talking about this kind of very fanatical work culture. He was sort of saying that in most big corporations, they want compliance. You tick the boxes and then you get on with your day. Whereas Amazon wants you to really buy into the, the culture and sort of really believe. They want you to believe. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't necessarily believe in the same fanatical way as they, they you know, as the the founders and, and those who, you know, drink the Kool-Aid. Um, yeah. It is something that Jeff Bezos, not being a superman, is aware of. In his last letter to shareholders as the CEO, he did say, we need to do a better job for our employees. We're going to be us best employer and their safest place to work now that's uh, of course very amazonian sort of uh grand language I- i'm yeah. not sure it's going to be ever seen by most of us the best place to work yeah um, but I-, I guess they're dealing with that uh, some of it's going to be window dressing some of it has got substantiation behind it i guess i mean Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that before we go too far down the rabbit hole? No, I mean, I think I think they know. I think they know what the issues are that they have to resolve. They've got plenty of uh, negative media. They've gotten plenty of, I'm sure, internal, you know, employee survey data and, and the like and employment HR information to know that there's opportunity for improvement. The challenge is they've tried to create a super, super lean system, lean machine. And it's like, you know, how far can you push that? Can one yeah. person supervise... Now, I mean, I knew, I know, I know of someone who supervised two hundred people. Yeah, you can't supervise two hundred people. I don't think. Yeah. Yep. So yep. you know <laughs> that kind of scenario is it just goes to directly to how how they perform, you know, internally. And and I think they've pointed out, he's pointed out, and they know they've got to improve on that. So so corporate culture, I think, is an interesting piece to think about. So. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, yeah. from my point of view, this fanatical culture, I, mean, I suppose, somewhat selfishly interested on behalf of my myself and my clients uh, and other people who are entering uh, the, the marketplace as third-party sellers, um, what that does for them, really. I mean, I suppose there's a similar sort of approach, I think, to third-party sellers as to the employees, which is to say either you subscribe to the, the one true faith or you leave. And there, there's a lot of turnover of third-party sellers and there's a lot of turnover mm-hmm. of employees, which can mask some of the numbers. I mean, OK, 1.9 million people may be selling on Amazon right now. That doesn't mean there isn't a sort of former pool of people of maybe 20 mm-hmm. million sure. people or whatever it is. I don't know what that is that did it and, and got spat out the other end. So I do think that we have to be aware of that's the nature of the beast. And, and by the way, I think that is a legacy that I don't see changing. If anything, I think that could get more extreme. What interests me is about this this customer obsession as well. The three drivers that Jeff Bezos has made m- many, many times, but we've always got to remember lower prices, greater selection, faster delivery. I think all of those have mm-hmm. implications for the future as well, which we can talk about a bit more in detail when we talk about the future. But I, I certainly think those pressures I don't see changing, yeah. actually, whether or not they should. From yeah. our perspective, I don't think they will. I think another thing that strikes me about the sort of culture is, again, more relevant to third-party sellers or indeed very established businesses selling on Amazon, which is removing or lowering the power of brands that because a lot of searches on amazon are keyword driven so generic keyword driven rather than driven by brand names and it's less about that kind of experience you'd have in a physical retail store about browsing and being guided by brand names then i think it removes a lot of the power of the established brands unless they're really really huge many of whom then also have some sort of on-off relationships with amazon famously nike as i understand so Mm What are your thoughts about that? I think that directly impacts our work as as people who sell on Amazon if we do. 
Yeah, I, I, you know, I think the the interesting corollary to offline large scale operations is important to think about. The largest original general merchandiser in the United States was Sears and Roebuck. And when they set up their system, it was all based out of the railroad yards out of Chicago. It became a massive, massive corporation. And it had about a hundred year run. And they so they sold everything. Now, you know, I don't know, was Sears big in the UK? I don't know. But in in my hometown, little town where I grew up, Sears store was the big store you'd go to. But over time, and and they carried everything too. It was the everything store for the you know United States in the seventies, and for a time that was cool. But but it had a life cycle that that ended for logical reasons. And I think it's interesting to me that Bezos has even said that all companies end in bankruptcy, and Amazon will as well. They're just trying to delay that for as long as possible. Sears went through that life cycle with the brick and mortar version of the everything store. And I believe that Amazon will go through that life cycle and it will end. And what it'll, what will be replaced by is much, much more customer-centric niched opportunities, you know, and, and I think that is something to think about. Um, the, the more they become generic, the more their customers see value in it and it does get cheaper and it does get faster, but people long to buy from people and people love brands and that'll never stop. And so I think, yes, they're the everything store, but I think over time that will be the thing that unwinds them. And who knows how long it'll take? Maybe it'll be a hundred years, probably will be, maybe even longer, who knows? But I think that's the interesting part here is that if they demote brands, I think it'll work in the future to wind down their percentage of overall e-commerce sales. Fascinating. Well, you got a certainly very clear view here. That's a, that's a classic pundit predictions. I like that brands will never stop. There, there is interesting psychology behind that, I guess. I mean, it's it's very interesting how far Amazon's managed to go in terms of making everything more Google-like. I you just kind of start with a question or a generic mm-hmm. idea, and you end up with a brand kind of mm-hmm. thing, as opposed mm-hmm. to brand-driven advertising, which is the classic TV industrial complex, I suppose, mm-hmm. isn't it? You know, you 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 keep seeing adverts for Budweiser, and they're called frogs croaking or whatever. And the next time you go into a bar, you kind of automatically think of Budweiser or whatever. So, yeah. I guess it's it sort of turns the starting point of the the shopping um journey on its head from that point of view i mean um yeah what are your thoughts about the sort of customer journey that amazon's got us into i, I can't remember yeah. what percentage in america but a big percentage of product-based mm-hmm. uh, searches start on amazon now i mean do you think that's going to continue or amazon well, as a search engine if you like what's that future i guess i'm old enough to remember before amazon when you just went down to the local Sears store and bought stuff. And then to see what Amazon's built, it really is almost magic. I mean, I think you you can't take away from what Bezos built, which is a system that on your phone or your computer, you can click a couple buttons, maybe even one button and have something delivered to your doorstep within like two hours or an hour. I mean, that is magical. And so, you know, that that's incredible. And you've got to just, he will go down in all time history as being the person who made that kind of system possible on the internet. That just is ju- uh, just an, an incredible, almost magic level happening in people's lives. And the to the degree to which that continues to occur in farther and farther out remote places, you know, around the world, that just becomes... I think his legacy, e- even if he doesn't do the work, if Amazon's not the seller of record, 
in India or Africa or, or wherever. Um, those systems, I think, all owe homage to, to Bezos and what he built at Amazon. And I think that's the underlying customer journey that we've all now become totally you know, accustomed to. We expect that level of service. That's sort of the new floor. It's like, Wait, I can't I can't order online and get it in a couple hours or a couple days at worst case. And so I think that's the journey that he's brought all of us on. Yeah. And we're all grateful for, you know. Well, I guess as consumers, we're definitely grateful for it. I mean, uh, one thing that's interesting about the the continual sort of setting the bar ever higher, sort of like one day delivery across the United States, which Lest we forget, and if you live in the States, obvious, but if you live in Europe, you can forget that the thing's 3,000 miles across. I mean, that's longer than it takes to get from Barcelona to Moscow, which nobody, it's not a journey I I know of anybody wanting to make. But it's it's extraordinary how the idea of doing one-day delivery across those distances, but perhaps less palatably, but kind of obviously as well, it's getting Mm -hmm. more and more and more expensive. So my understanding is that Amazon's, uh, the percentage of revenue they spent on fulfillment was something like 29% of revenue last year, and it used to be 22, and it used to be 15%. So in other words, there's getting mm-hmm. more and more mm-hmm. of a loss that Amazon as a first party seller is piling up and it's yeah. putting that expectation on everybody. So yeah. you know this when you try to go from using the FBA system fulfilled by Amazon to seller fulfilled prime or, or mm-hmm. fulfilled by merchant and finding people who can hit their metrics is really tough. And that just starts to give you a reality check that Amazon has created a bit of a monster with its expectations for third party sellers as well yeah. as a wonderful thing for consumers. Well, they have. I mean, I think that's that's the challenge. But honestly, that's that's what pace setters do. You know, as we record this, it's Olympic trials, and uh, we're watching all of the Olympic trial people do their races, and pace setters force it to go farther, faster than they expected they could. And and Amazon has clearly been that. And so, even at a technical level, you know, many many Shopify apps that are built are just basically trying to do what Amazon's already pioneered. You know. And, uh, but, but the Shopify system allows for that. And it's amazing, you know, like, oh, look what Amazon's doing. Okay, here's an app for that. You can use it on Shopify and do it yourself. So, you know, technology will continue to advance like that, where when people see pioneering work, they can do uh, iterative process and make their own version out of it because of the core principles that things hinge on. You know, the tech can be your own stack and your own implementation, but you get to the same end goal for consumer experience and that will continue to happen. So I I do think that there's a logical limit to the extent to last mile problems continue to plague Amazon. And, you know, that's been their real, you know, mantra for a long time is, you know, how do, how do they get that last mile delivery super fast and efficient? Now, the numbers you just quoted say they're just paying through the nose to make that a reality. And can they continue to do that? I guess they can to the extent that AWS continues to scale and they have a deep pocket in another part of their business. But to the extent that the third party seller system, the marketplaces have to survive on their own or cover their own expenses, that's a tough, tough road to hoe. It's interesting. That's an interesting point, actually, because that's one of those common tropes because Amazon doesn't play its, it carries its cards very close to its chest, which is one of the absolute characteristics of Amazon. Again, a bit like, I don't know, a closed community like the Marines, the Jesuits is is what my recent guest of mine, Robin Gusto, compared them to very, very accurately, I think. Not that I've been a Jesuit or Marine, so I'm speculating on an outsider here. But they, (laughs) they don't reveal the numbers, but, but based on analysis, he got some very sophisticated people to do that. He, he reckons actually, 
the third party marketplace is actually the biggest profit driver. Yes, AWS is very profitable, but actually the, the way that this can work, I think, is that they lose money as a first party seller. But if you notice the percentage of revenue that's done by third party sellers keeps going up year on year and in absolute terms, the revenue is growing as well. So in other words, the third party revenue keeps growing very, very rapidly year on year for, for a number of years. And that's probably what's you know covering the costs. And if you're a third party seller, you'll have noticed fulfillment costs are not not getting any cheaper. So I think that's how they're covering those costs myself. I think AWS is the icing on the cake. So I think that you're right that they are throwing money at it, but they're throwing third-party sellers' Mm -hmm. money for the large extent, not consumer money. So I think really the people that are paying for all this expansion, it's largely becoming more and more, in fact, they're third-party sellers, which I think is why we have to sit around and speculate as third-party sellers, because we need to see where this thing is going. Um, and whether there's any profit left for us at the end of it in a year, in two years, in three years' time, in five years. If that is true, then that is the kernel of their future demise. Because what you're saying is that the third-party seller in their system is a source of profit. But we also know, and I think you could speak to this, that the third-party selling on Amazon has become increasingly more challenging, difficult, frustrating, and in many case, cases, you know, we I think you and I both have clients that are successful as third-party sellers but are looking for diversification, omni-channel strategies, and or their next replacement. Many of them come to me looking for Shopify direct-to-consumer sales because of the frustrations, tensions, and challenges on the Amazon platform. I'm not saying it's going to go away anytime soon, but what I am saying is that there's a finite pool of large-scale third-party sellers that can sell on Amazon. Now, anybody could start at zero and scale up, but the people who can do it at scale, if they grow increasingly frustrated with Amazon, they will look for alternatives. And that's just the nature of competitive marketplaces. Will they ever leave Amazon because of the scale and sales velocity that it has, maybe they won't, but they'll be looking for direct-to-consumer opportunities or they'll be looking for alternates like Walmart. And that will uh, create a future in which Amazon is forced to compete for the third-party seller business with better third-party seller service policies, practices. It's a really interesting, I guess, speculation about the future. But I think those two things are very interesting to think about. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think pretty much all of us pray and hope that you're right. And I'm feeling our guts, that's justice. Whether that happens, I think the dynamic you mentioned is is a strong one. I guess it comes down to who else can get and keep the customers in large enough numbers to persuade people to actually, instead of bitching and moaning about Amazon, running a Shopify site that does maybe 10% of their revenue or whatever. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I know you've had some amazing successes with your clients getting people who are Amazon-only sellers to get you know, 10, 20, 30% of, of their revenue on Shopify in a short time. So that maybe it's more doable than I think, in which case what you say is is a, a very big threat to Amazon. If it yeah. isn't as doable as that, then I suspect if Amazon is where the customers are, then that's mm-hmm. for the moment where the sellers will go, mm-hmm. much as they may hate it. I mean, that hasn't been any different for the last few years. I mean, everyone hates the way they get treated by Amazon every so often. But I mean, yeah. do you think that people can get off Amazon and really build a, a similar level of, shall we say, profits, which is the number that matters? Or do you think it's it's actually harder than that? Well, my daughter bought something off Walmart.com the other day, and I was surprised that she did it. 
but then <laughs> this is the funny part. But so I'm saying Walmart might be the answer. But the, then the Walmart item showed up at our doorstep. Okay. It was delivered in a Walmart grocery shopping bag, like the kind they hand to you, you know, like when you check out and it just had a sticker. It was just twist, like just a little like shoestring tied at the top with the handle and then a sticker on it. And it was put on our doorstep by a lady in a normal car in her sweats, which fine, whatever she wear, whatever she wants, all she's delivering. But that whole experience was lightning fast and super frugal. And my daughter got the uh, mouse she wanted for her new computer. And it was cheaper than Amazon. But it was kind of funny how they did it. They literally had it on a shelf, obviously, or in the store somewhere here locally. And they literally just put it in a bag, brought it over to our house. And so is Walmart part of the prescription for omni-channel success in the future? I think probably. We're seeing our clients with bigger than ever Walmart sales. And so there you go. I mean, I think that's part of it. So anyway, this is, uh, I think, part of my thinking as it relates to you know how this might play out in the future for them. I, I want to mention one other thing, though, before we uh, move on from that. And that's an, another piece of the Bezos legacy is his early and often commitment to non-profitability. And I think that was, if you look back on it, really, really odd behavior at the time. His first shareholder letter clearly said, we're going for scale. And when you look back on it now, it was a genius move, but he was not going for profitability even as a publicly traded company. And he just continued to say that we're going for scale. We're going for scale. And, and, uh, and he, and he did that. And I think that'll be one of his legacies as well as he really pioneered in a way that whole model of, you know, get, get big fast and he made it work. And then I think that serves as a model for a lot of other startups and e-commerce companies that they can basically just say point blank to their shareholders, look, it's a huge opportunity. We're not going to return investment to you and we're going to just focus on market share. And I think that's a, that, that will forever be one of his legacies. That original shareholder letter from, I think, 97 it was, hmm. was just a, a powerful statement of his intent and he lived it out. And that's really, really interesting. Yeah, very interesting. And and the flip side to that, and his last ever shareholders as a uh, uh, letter as CEO, he said one of his hints as to why he's moving out of the CEO chair is in my upcoming role as uh, executive chair, I'm going to focus on new initiatives. I'm an inventor. It's what I enjoy the most and it's what I do best. It's where I create the most value. So it's what he's, I guess, kind of basically said at the beginning in 1997, I guess, whenever it was went public, right? And that expect us to be focusing on innovation and don't expect us to be delivering profits quickly. And I, I guess he's kind of hinting like he wants to be able to get on with that. And I think the final thing that I'd like to just, uh, and the sort of the legacy piece reference is, again, from the final letter to shareholders from Jeff Bezos, he referenced a passage from Richard Dawkins' book, The Blind Watchmaker, which is about evolution and biology. And it says something like, staving off death is a thing you have to work at. Left to itself, and this is what happens when it dies, the body tends to revert to a state of equilibrium with its environment. If you measure some quantities such as temperature in a living body, you'll find it's typically markedly different from the surrounding measure you know, in the environment. So Jeff Bezos said this, yes, this passage is not intended as a metaphor, but it is very relevant to Amazon and all companies. And here are three questions he asked, which are, I think, the kind of thinking that hopefully for Andy Jassy, which we'll talk about in a second, is going to be a legacy. So these are Jeff Bezos's questions following that. In what ways does the world pull at you in an attempt to make you normal? How much work does it take to maintain your distinctiveness? 
and to keep alive the things or things that make you special. And I guess that Jeff Bezos' big fear is why he's obsessed with day one and called the headquarters day one and all the rest of it is because when you move on from being distinctive and special, that's when the beginning of the end, as he says, irrelevance and ultimately death or some such jolly phrase. I love that. Yeah. yeah. So I think that that thinking is probably, and actually implementing that kind of thinking rather than just mm -hmm. saying grand words. Yeah. It, to your flip, the flip side of what you just said, I, I think being willing to recognize the importance of differentiating yourself in the environment and as such to really put profit on hold sometimes for a long time is, is really his legacy as, as a CEO and, and founder, I think. Yeah, absolutely right. Well, this is interesting kind of reflection on his legacy. Shall we jump into talking about Andy Jassy and the future opportunities that exist for him? Yeah, I guess so it's Andy okay. Jassy's day one. So he's literally just started in the role. I guess he was starting in, in Q3. So that's just kicking off. I guess. He'll start, he starts on, he starts literally tomorrow, Tuesday, because it's a holiday yep. tomorrow in the US. Yep. So as we record this, he yep. starts in two days from now. Yeah. Excellent. So yeah, I mean, what is Amazon's future plan? I, I like your keep, start, stop framework. I, I guess he at some sophisticated level will be doing one of those or will have done one mm -hmm. of those. But mm -hmm. quick intro to Jassy. I mean, first of all, he's been there since 1997, which is when Amazon went public. In fact, the year of the first shareholder letter so bezos only founded amazon in 1994 as a tiny startup so he's really been there from almost from the off certainly as a public company i would say it's a continuity candidate the fact that he's um, been in head in charge of, of aws so the computing clouds software side i guess means he's not so embedded in the traditional retail model so i can't see him spending that much time on the nuts and bolts of the retail business and besides which for that amazon it's a legacy business i guess that healthcare and aws will be some amazing growth opportunities so i can't see him doing something radical is the impression i get but i, I don't think that he's going to change the the direction of of travel with the the uh, third party marketplace or the first party seller which is to say to gradually let the third party sellers as we discussed take more and more of the strain financially and, and pay for this massive infrastructure that amazon's mm -hmm. building so that's mm -hmm. my overall view on him well what's your take on andy jesse so far well, it's sort of hilarious that I have sort of a personal insight a little bit and not to overplay it or anything like that, but I know somebody who worked for their family personally for 12 years. And it, when and when he was named as CEO, then I didn't even remember the the people worked for for the Jassies and then they said, "You know who the new CEO is?" Yeah, it's the person we used to 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 work for. And uh, so just funny local connection here in Seattle. And so I was able to ask them, well, well, you know, what, what are they like and all that stuff? And, you know, there was no bombshell revelation or anything like that. It wasn't anything like gossip calling me or anything like that. It was just sort of interesting, the local connection. So I, I just didn't know contextually who he was or what he did very much. Cause I'm not just, you know, always inside Amazon baseball stuff all day long. So I, so it was interesting to hear that perspective from just a local uh, employer perspective, you know, and so th that's some um, just my initial commentary. But I do think that the primary question to ask ourselves is what does a caretaker CEO look like after the founding CEO leaves? Now, it's interesting because I think the big, big, big example here locally is Microsoft which is literally right across the 520 bridge from uh, Amazon headquarters. So they, they're, they're literally like uh, two and a half miles apart or something like that. And, and so obviously the history there is when Bill Gates left Microsoft, he left in, in place uh, Steve Ballmer, his strong long-term 
lieutenant who was a total con- consummate insider, consummate like cultural, like, you know, you know, carry the torch type person who replaced Bill Gates. And I think it's fair to say that Microsoft went into a you know 20 year period of maintaining what Bill Gates had built. And I think that's the fairest way to probably summarize, you know, Steve Ballmer. Now, then you've got Steve Jobs, who had a caretaker replacement in Tim Cook. I think it's fair to say that's sort of the scenario that's played out with Apple as well, where there's this, you know, now, you know, decade long or whatever, I guess it's been a decade exactly, caretaker CEO replacement for the visionary founder. And the question will be for Andy Jassy, if he will be a caretaker, keep things in place. CEO, because that's what Bezos has christened him to do and be, or whether he'll bring innovation and real change. I don't know. I I think the jury is out. Now, obviously, Apple in the last 10 years has gone phenomenally well, like in terms of commercial success. And who knows, Amazon might as well. So it is interesting to think about this sort of, you know, who do you who do you replace the founder with? And I do think it's, it's very, very common for it to be a long, long held close relationship insider lieutenant who is in essence there to handle well the founder's ideas and vision and work and that's sort of the undercurrent of the of the whole role so that's my first thought on just what's happening right now you know very interesting i would say a couple of things that strike me i mean first of all if you're using those two as examples, I mean, everyone talks about Apple all the time, and I'm, I'm working on Apple equipment right now. But Microsoft has been a very profitable stock to hold. And if you if you want profitable um, stock, I mean, good cash flow, and therefore, you know, if they had it on good dividends, um, Microsoft's been pretty good for a long time. And I would say Apple is actually an interesting one, because talking about innovation, as we talked about in the last episode, where you said... Jeff Bezos' first message to the um, investment community was in 1997 when Amazon went public, you don't expect any profits soon. We're going to go for innovation. I would say to a, de- to a degree, Steve Jobs was a bit that character. He, he obviously worshipped creativity in, in a way. I don't think he was just as simplistic as that. But right. Tim Cook was brought in to clean up Apple's alleged pretty major shortcomings in supply chain and stuff and then did a great job. But I would say Apple is now a very great cash flow stock. I, I wouldn't necessarily invest in it as, as a great future growth stock. So I wonder whether mm-hmm. Amazon has been positioned to be a similar thing. I wonder if that's a sort of signal that they're selling. What, what do you think about that? Well, I'm an investor and have been an investor in all these companies. I don't currently own any Microsoft stock, but I, I did for a long time. And I, yeah, I, I take your point completely. Whether the CEO performs creatively and brings the company in a new direction is completely different than whether the stock performs well <laughs> for shareholders. And those can be two different things. Sure. And so yeah. I think that you just have to think, okay, what what is he inheriting? And what is his background? Obviously, AWS's you know, conceptualization of cloud computing that when we first started hearing about what they were doing, everyone was like, what now? But I think if you're old enough to remember you know, the 90s or whatever, one of the big question marks for all of these e-commerce companies was, do they literally just have enough computing power to have websites stay up and not crash when they have massive site traffic? And we forget that that was even a thing because it's not a thing anymore. They've built systems that enable, I mean, when, when AWS, if it ever goes down, it's a big, big, big deal. I mean, I, you know, it does happen occasionally, but you know, the, the, those systems and the value he created, I think is massive. The, the reality, you know, of him coming into the role from that area of the business, I think is very meaningful and important. The question will be whether the third party, uh, the marketplaces, the, you know, the uh, core business, I guess you could say in a way, is treated better, worse, 
or indifferently in the years ahead. Hey there, folks. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of The E-Commerce Leader. So today we've been discussing Jeff Bezos's legacy, which kind of is a hint as to where Amazon goes next as well, because there's a lot of continuity in this, this game, this discussion we're having. So really, I guess a few summary thoughts. The customer obsession, which I don't think is going to go away. Is it an anti-brand or is it not? The Sears Bro- Roebuck comparison, as, as um, Jason was saying, 100-year run, but it was the everything store once upon a time, but it ended for a logical reason. And I guess that the niche opportunity as a threat to Amazon's opposite everything store idea is a very interesting thought that, that uh, Jason's positing there to be discussed, right? I mean, if you're a Shopify sort of big fan, then maybe that is the future. I think it, that may happen, but it will take many years. But it's interesting uh, thought about where that's going. And then the last mile problem, still very difficult for every single e-commerce operator, Amazon included, and how are they going to solve that? And then the question of when do third-party sellers get fed up with Amazon and at what point do they leave Amazon um, for direct-to-consumer sites, walmart.com. Again, as a third-party seller myself and one who leads communities of those, I don't think that's happening anytime soon, but I mean, there may be a trend that we've got to keep an eye on for that. Walmart's certainly a very interesting one. And I know that Jason's having a lot of success with his clients in some cases with that. And the direct-to-consumer play is something that pretty much every single Amazon seller that I know that's serious with their own products rather than resellers is developing. In other words, so in Shopify store, WooCommerce or whatever else it is that they're building. And then the final things that really the legacy. And by the way, we didn't say this in the podcast. I just like to quote from Jeff Bezos's final shareholder letter this year, 2021 to the shareholders, which in which he says this, if you want to be successful in business in life, actually, you have to create more than you consume. Your goal should be to create value for everyone you interact with. Any business that doesn't create value for those it touches, even if it appears successful on the surface, isn't long for this world. It's on the way out. And whatever you think of Jeff Bezos and, and Amazon, I think that's a pretty nice statement that I, I would say to be true. You've got to create value. And it's the politically correct things for a CEO to say, of course, in the shareholders letter. But I think that Jeff Bezos has a fair claim on having added a great deal of value to a lot of consumers' lives. So thanks very much for listening. Final thing to say is that we are running a contest. To enter the contest, you just go to uh, www.contest.theecommerceleader.com no hyphens or anything www.contest.theecommerceleader.com and all you need to do to enter the contest is subscribe to the podcast on any player you want and the prize is a 250 dollars visa gift card as the currency implies, if you're in the USA, it's geared to you, unless Rhode Island or some other reason why, for legal reasons, you can't enter a contest wherever you live. Uh, if you're based in the UK, I don't know the, the UK's law on competitions. As far as I'm concerned, if you can legally enter, then please do, and we'll figure out the currency thing down the line. But either which way, don't forget to subscribe to the show, and you're going to get financially rewarded if you do this time round, and that runs until the end of July 2021. So if you listen to this uh, podcast before that date, please go to contest.theecommerceleader.com and don't forget to get yourself into the contest in, and as a reward for subscribing and supporting the show. Thanks so much for listening. Speak to you in the next podcast. That was the E-Commerce Leader podcast with Michael Vesey in London, England and Jason Miles in Seattle, Washington. 
If you liked this content, don't forget to subscribe to the show on your podcast app. For free resources, including PDFs and videos on topics like traffic, products, and sales channels, just go to www.theecommerceleader.com. No hyphens, just as it sounds. Thanks so much for listening.